morning again. My name is Renee Vandenberg. We are from Green Bay, Wisconsin. Um, we own and operate a certified organic farm. We currently have um, a small acreage, uh, about a quarter of an acre, dedicated to elderberries. But if you have any kind of acreage at all, one elderberry bush, 10, 20 elderberry bushes makes a lot of berries. The reason we do it is for health benefits. Um, and what you're going to learn today is how to propagate by cutting and rooting, growing the site selection, how to plant, harvesting, preserving, canning, and freezing. What are your goals? How many of you guys here have farms, have acreage? Okay, a lot of you, good. Um, do you, who here has elderberries? Do you grow elderberries? A couple of you, cool. What do you do with them? For health, okay. Um, what are your goals? You need to think about that. If you're gonna plant some elderberries, some people just want beautiful edible bushes in their yard, and that can be a great reason. Um, somebody wants to make enough production for their own family. We have enough bushes that we produce enough juice for our family and our church. In one year, we get about enough for two years of, of service to our friends. So now we are going to be selling a little bit. We have a little roadside stand by our farm where we sell asparagus and a couple other things, and we're gonna be adding elderberry to that. But think about your goals, and as you have your goals figured out, you can figure out your site selection. If you have a yard, you can find a place in your yard where you can plant an elderberry bush. It is best if you have two of them, although they are self-pollinating, most of the varieties are. So it's not absolutely necessary to have two, but it would be better for pollination and for larger berries. This is the first place where I planted elderberries and I have 15 bushes in an area probably from here to the end of the wall. And that is way too many. They go in and they're this big and you put them five feet apart, four feet apart, and you're like, oh, I can get more in there. And then they grow. And that's my biggest problem with everything. Anything in my garden, I have always forgot that things grow and get big. So they intertwined and I had two different varieties there. I had Johns and I had or, um, Wildwood and Adams. And so now I have no idea which is which because they root or go out from rhizomes and they come up and so not just completely intertwined. It's very, very hard to pick the elderberries here because the stuff to the right is raspberries. And the raspberries have actually gone in and they're really pokey. Um, so it's real hard to get on that side. And the other side is the asparagus. So the ferns have fallen over. So these have gotten, the, the row is at least seven feet wide. So you need to really do a good job on figuring out site selection. This is the second place that I planted elderberries and I was gonna make sure that time I got them far enough apart, which I did, but then they haven't grown together very well. Um, this is a part of the rest of my garden and that's a hayfield on the other side. Um, it's a little too far apart, so there isn't like an area here where it's good for production. The problem with this on this garden is it's on the north side, on the, excuse me, on the west side. So as the elderberries get to be six or eight feet tall, they're going to shade out my garden. So you have to look for a couple hours of the day anyway. So you want to look and get a real nice place. Um, I call that my kneeling garden because everything I do in there is on my knees and every time I'm down there, that's like when I'm really thinking about God. My standing gardens, I, I, I just look at how beautiful everything is and it makes me think of the Lord, but the kneeling garden, when I'm down on my hands and knees with my fingers in the dirt, that's when I really feel the closest um, gardening with God. This is one of our new places. Um, it's on a hillside. It's very hard for us to farm. We can't get in there real easily with our machinery. So my husband said I could have it because he doesn't want it. 
Um, it's on a hillside. Um, we went along and we mowed the hay down. We got real close um, dug holes. And when we planted these, um, I'll go a little more into planting later, we made nice big holes, put lots of organic compost into there. This actually is a clay hill. Um, when we had our, our manure pit dug, when we had, we had cows up until 2005, but when they did dig our manure pit, we had a lot of clay that they didn't know where to go with. And manure pits, it is about 200 feet by 200 feet by 20 feet deep. So that was a lot of dirt we had to find a place for. So that's when we made this hill. It's now producing after 20 years, it's producing fairly well, um, but still not up to the, the rest of the farm. And that's one of the reasons why we chose this place. Elderberries are not real high feeders. They don't demand a lot of care and they don't demand a lot of fertilizer. If you, you wanna make sure your soil's balanced, but if they get what they need, they'll really produce well, but they're not like things that require more. When you're propagating, you wanna decide if you wanna go with hardwood cuttings or greenwood cuttings. We do greenwood cuttings in the summer because they're uh, easier to propagate. They'll root a lot better. The, it's green and growing and they seem to just kind of take off. Um, this is a hardwood cutting. I'm gonna pass some of these around. Hardwood cuttings can be taken in the winter. They can be shipped, they can be mailed, they can be kept in the refrigerator. As long as you don't get them warm, they won't sprout. But as you guys go around, just take a look at these and you'll see that these are about to bud stage. This is what we do in January. We'll go out and he had to take the chainsaw on a couple of them. I was so afraid of pruning. I'm so afraid of pruning that I actually left my elderberries go for four years. And I got um, a stump that was about this big. And I got plants that were like 14 feet tall and I was so thrilled I thought I was gonna get so many elderberries that year. But the plant put all the energy into growing that wood and it didn't grow very many berries for me. So I was very, very disappointed. And after that, I had to remember, just don't be afraid, cut them down, they'll come back. But this is how we gather the sticks. We go out in the winter when the plant is completely dormant. And I don't know if you can really see here the big, actually it's back in there, the really, really big stump that we took out. Um, elderberry is most productive on second and third year wood. So what you do is after it's, it'll get, it's one plant in the middle, it'll start to make shoots that'll come up. The first wood, as you're looking at these as they go around, um, this is probably only two-year-old wood. This, the little ones you'll see, is gonna be one-year-old wood. Sometimes you'll get them, I had a special one here that was hollow, it's probably going around. As you look at the end, if you find a hollow one, those are ones you don't wanna use. I think you can even see the hollowness on this one, okay? Um, that's just not gonna have enough nutrition. The question is, does, um, question is, do you need to pro um, do any propagation if you're gonna have one in your yard? The answer to that is no, you don't need to propagate, but you do need to prune. So if you can find someone who wants your sticks, that's a great use of them. Um, but as you go through your sticks, you need to be very careful to pick out ones that are gonna be viable. We gather the sticks in the house and the garage, we'll go through them and we'll pull off all the dead ones and those we put in the wood burner. Um, the rest of them we'll take into the house. The good long straight ones are the ones um, that seem to propagate a little bit better, that will bud a little bit better. They're not going to, if you'll see the ones you're looking at now, they'll have little buds on them and they're going to feel a little bit swollen. Um, they came on the airplane, they were in the hotel room. Normally I would have kept them frozen and cold or at least in the refrigerator. 
but now with all this travel, they've kind of come to bud swell stage. But after we cut out the bad ones, the dead ones, oh yeah, and don't plant dead, dead sticks. The first year I did this, I cut all those bushes down and I planted about 150 of them and they were all off of dead sticks and I didn't know you were supposed to look for the green. So it, every, every single one of them failed. So look for a little bit of green on the sides. You can take your fingernail when those are coming around and kind of look at the green that's in there. When you do plant them, as you're looking at them, you're going to see the little nodes. Most of them will definitely have a little uptick to them. Some of them go straight out, and it's kind of hard to see. But if you plant them upside down, they won't grow. They'll sprout a little bit of green, and then they'll just die. Okay, So you always want to plant with this end up. And you can see the little bud swells on there. These are all coming out. That's how I used to plant them, all in each pot. Because I do sell a lot of the, um, the plants off of our little stand out front. I don't sell so many of the berries. I kind of like to teach people how to grow it themselves instead of making juice for them. This would be one of the ways that I would um, put them in any kind of plastic, anything. You don't necessarily want it to drain. You don't want it to get waterlogged. But you're going to use whatever kind of container you choose. And there can be a little bud swell. There can be a little green that comes out of the ones on the bottom and you cover it with your growing medium, whatever you choose to use. I use coconut core, worm castings, perlite, um, but the one that I use the most now is leaf mold or leaf mulch. Um, we get tons of leaf mulch from the city and we use that. So you put your plants in it and make sure it stays moist and they should sprout for you. I don't put them in water. Nope, this is not water. This is just a plain plastic dish. It had something in it, some salad. And so I use, and the other one is like a mushroom oh, container. Then you add the soil after. Yeah, so that's okay. the one without the soil, and that is the one with the soil, and eventually I, I okay. put soil in the other one. Sorry, is it just potting soil? Or? Um, the question is, is it just potting soil? And you can use potting soil if you want, although I don't think that that's the best. When you get potting soil, sometimes it'll make little roots, and then you kind of rip those roots out of there. So I use things that is looser, like perlite or coconut core or the leaf mold, okay? But you, you can use, if you're doing them one at a time and you're not going to be pulling them out of the dirt, then you can do anything you want. And then potting soil is good. Then plant them in something that they want to be in. Rooting hormone? Rooting hormone. Um, occasionally, okay? Rooting hormone, we are a certified organic farm and because of that reason, I, there is no such thing that I have found as a rooting hormone, at least a commercial rooting hormone that is organic. So I don't use them. There are kinds you can make by soaking willow, um, willow shoots and stuff like that. If you look online, you can find all those recipes for that kind of thing, but I, I don't generally use it. But rooting hormone, that would be your personal choice. By the time you are going to get any berries off of these, that rooting hormone is going to be gone. But if you would choose to use rooting hormone, you would just dip it, dip the end, whether it's liquid or powder, dip the end and then put it in your, in your rooting material. This is when I used to do it in water. Almost every single one would sprout and die. For some reason, they just don't like the water. They don't like to be propagated in the water. And even if they do, and you do get a good root system in there, they're going to end up being weaker roots, so that's why I use the, some kind of growing medium now. Um, I do it in a shoebox. 
I've tried all different kinds of things. I'll just put, if I have like those ones to the right, they're all kinds of scraps from cutting, ones that I knew had nodes on them. And so I just threw them in a box and cut, lined the box with a garbage bag so it would stay um, moist, and then put the growing medium on top of it, and a lot of them sprouted like that. When I get sprouts like this, that's about when I plant them. It can be a little bit longer if you, um, if you want. If you keep them dark, they'll stay white. Um, if you keep them on the porch and it's cool, they won't go real fast. If you start to put them in a warmer place, they'll start to grow a lot quicker. The question is, where do you do this in? Um, Oregon. So um, yes, you could put it in your garage. That won't slow it down very much. Um, in Wisconsin, it would slow it down a lot. That's, I guess, what I meant by where the garage is. Um, depending upon how cold. The colder, you don't want to refreeze them. There is usually more than one leaf node on the inside of this, but it's a lot of energy to get those out. So you want to get it on the first flush. Um, there is no reason why this time of year you can't start potting them. Um, they'll just grow in a pot until they're ready to put outside. And I don't know what your winter is like exactly here, but there are some places where they could even plant them in January, like Texas and stuff. But myself personally, I'd wait until the last frost. Um, this is another way that I've done it, is lay everything flat down in a box. These are bigger sticks. Um, I found when you put the big sticks in a single pot, they're not quite as good as the little sticks in a single pot. So I'll lay them down. The um, paper towel rule back there is to kind of get them on an angle like this. Not that they have to be, but um, it kind of gets them tipping up so I know for sure which way is up. Then I'll put my growing medium on the top of them and just close it up like it is on the right and just leave it. And I'll check it like once a week to make sure that there's moisture in there. And as long as they're moist, um, you should get sprouts. Once we plant them, I kind of used to give up too soon. Can you guys see way down here, this stick, it had a shoot and that died. And then see this little thing right there? That's another one coming up. A lot of times I'd give up too soon. Um, also, I would tend to water a little bit too much. They like the soil damp, but not really wet. Okay? I think I even have, you can probably even see, I have the soil a little bit wetter on that one than it should be. But just you know, pray over them. That's huge for me because elderberries are a little bit difficult to propagate. I tried to buy some bushes at my local nursery, and the one thing that he did say is we don't sell those. They're too hard you know, to grow. Once they're growing, you can't kill them. <laughs> yes. Okay, so that's what some of those, that's um, a piece of, um, I call them junk. I throw the one the kinds that I throw in the box. They're not sticks like this that have the perfect two nodes on them, but I would throw all my junk cuttings into the box, and a lot of times I'd get them like this, and it's just one more, one more plant I get to share with somebody. Once they're going, pot them up. I keep them out of my, my porch. Um, my porch in Wisconsin, starting in about March, it really doesn't freeze out there anymore. We have a little heater from the house that runs out there. Um, elderberries have some sort of antifreeze in their leaves and they really can handle a lot of frost. But when they're young and tender, you'd like to be as careful as you can with them. You get them potted up and then they're ready to go outside by the time spring is there. Did, the, zone the zone range is from three to nine. 
Um, last year from Texas, I gave a lot of them to people who lived in Texas. And the answer was pretty much the same there. It's okay, it was fine while it was inside and then it died when I put it outside. And I think that in that first year, you really need to tend them. You really need to be careful. You need to water them. You don't want to let them dry out if you live in a more arid area. They also don't like to be, have really, really wet feet. Um, you have to have well-drained soil. But if you have well-drained soil, they tolerate lots of different kinds of soil. We have very heavy clay in Wisconsin, so we have to build up and make sure they're kind of on a hill so that it can run away. This is what they'll look like if you pot them individually and you'll think, you know, you have a lot of wonderful elderberries growing. I'd say probably nine out of 10 will get to this stage. Um, after this stage, for some reason, I've had, when I pot them individually, about 40% luck. So when I'm trying to do a couple hundred at a time, I don't want to take the space to pot them like this. But if you're going to take one or two or five or 10 home, you got lots of room. You might as well do it this way. It's just as good as the laying down methods that I the question is, is the varieties I have there, are they Sambucus nidra? The exact answer to that is I'm not positive, but they are black elderberries, black North American elderberries. Uh, this is the lighting that I use for them. Once They don't need a ton of light, so I find them that they're okay on my porch with just the natural light coming in. We do have a couple of these stands where we'll put um, some of them, like if I have a real small one that I'm, that. I'm thinking it's just gonna be a super bush. I might put it inside for a while and put it under the lights. But other than that, when they get a little bit bigger, outside in the porch is just fine. I've actually had a few of them potted there. Um, the ones I did not sell last year and I didn't have time to put in my own field, we've left them on the porch for two years and they've been fine. We have in um, Wisconsin, up in the river that goes into the Green Bay, we have a carp problem. So they love it when the fishermen go out and bowfish carp and they didn't have anything to do with their fish. So we started getting in little, you know, one person at a time that would come in with their 50 pounds or 55 gallon bucket of fish. And all of a sudden we started getting approached by these tournaments, will you take our fish? And much to my dismay, my husband said, yes, this stuff is pretty smelly, but we compost it. The pile behind it, that black pile, is leaf, leaves that we get from the city. The city will actually bring us out semi-trucks or dump trucks full of leaves because they don't have a place for everything. And we compost them with the fish. The, on the right is another line that's going to be another garden. We put the compost down and it's going to kill all the grass in a year. We're going to move it off and that's going to be another garden area. But between the composted leaves and the fish, that picture doesn't do it justice. But this stuff is so crumbly and so nice and so fertile. I've built almost my whole garden, almost my, all my raised beds out of it. And then we put this around and inside the dirt when we plant the elderberries as well. We talked a little bit about site selection. When I dig, I kind of read through Ellen White's method of planting trees. And I thought for a bush, it should probably be about the same thing. So that's how we did. Now a hole that's three times as big of a pot this big isn't the same as digging a tree. But we'd make them very large. We'd put natural dirt inside, do everything that we, um, that we should have according to her method, planted them in straight lines. This is our first row on what's going to be several rows, but you can see the little string here. Do all you guys know how to use a string to make straight rows? And <laughs> everyone's laughing. <laughs> 
Um, you can, well, we have baler's twine, lots of baler's twine around our house, so we just take a you know, 100-foot piece of baler's twine and go from stake to stake and run the string tight, and then we can plant right underneath it. Does anybody know what this is? Hornworm? Yeah, I was so surprised when I walked in there. I was like, oh. <laughs> and, um, You can see him down here. He's just, he's just going to town on these leaves. He's just, you can just see him. Ch -ch 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 -ch. Now, I had one, and that's it. We don't, of course, spray for anything. Um, I picked him up, and I took him down to the creek, and I set him in the creek, so hopefully he can eat something down there. Um, but that's really the only time we've ever had a pest as far as that goes. And he couldn't eat enough. As big as he is, and this thing was this big, he could not eat enough to even put a dent in the elderberries. This is our other guy. Um, I had no idea what was eating my, um, oh, my everything in the garden. And so we put up deer cameras. <laughs> and it was like, oh, he's there. So um, we have a couple of these that, and voles as well, that will dig holes. They stay pretty far away from the elderberries for whatever reason. They go down to the regular garden. But we have had a couple of, of mice or voles or whatever tunnel under the elderberries. We just fill it in and they tend to go away. But the biggest problem is the birds. Um, the day before, I had lots of elderberries on that plant. And the birds just came and kind of ate them all. But other than that, you really have not very many problems with pests or diseases at least in our climate, and I can't speak to any other climate that's warmer. Um, lots of stuff in Wisconsin dies in the winter because it gets pretty cold. Um, you can use, uh, I tried last year to use bird netting. If you're gonna use bird netting, you have to set up some kind of a, a frame around it because the first time I threw the bird netting over there, it went over all the heads of the berries, and as soon as I picked the bird netting up, all the berries just went flying off. So it really didn't do any good. But some sort of a, a rack or something to keep it over. Um, on those couple days, you could even probably put a sheet over them if you wanted to. But it's just like there's just that one day when they turn ripe and the birds just know it, as with just about everything else. After you've uh, picked all your berries, what we do um, is we like to get them frozen. We like to keep them you know, as frozen as quickly as we can. They don't last real long. Um, so we'll take and we'll pick them, we'll put them in the boxes, we'll bring them in the kitchen, we'll rinse them all off, wash them all, and set them upside down on towels. And sometimes we'll run a fan on them to dry them off a little bit quicker. I don't have a picture of a lot of this stuff. I didn't really know I was going to be doing this during the time we were um, harvesting and everything. But we'll take a big silver bowl and we'll just put the heads here, 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 get all the stems up into the middle, throw that in the freezer and we'll get them all frozen. And once they're frozen, you can take a fork or your fingers and just slide the frozen berries off of the heads. Because if you had to pick every one of those little berries off by hand, you'd smush them and you'd lose 80% of the juice before you ever got them picked. The question is, is it a problem leaving the stems on and pressing? I would not do that. I have heard that there is, I don't want to say toxins. I don't know how poison it is, actually is, but I know it will give you a stomachache if you eat them raw. And I would not leave the stems on myself. Um, you can do research. The, the statement is that uh, this young gentleman says that the, the stems can be very toxic, and I believe you, also raw. So make sure you cook them before you eat them in one way or the other. 
and remove as much of the stems as you can. When you freeze them and knock them off, you're still going to get little pieces of stem. One more thing that we do if we want to get rid of some of that um, is once they're frozen, they come out, you have them in a bucket or a bag, we'll roll them across a big cookie sheet. And the berries are still frozen and they'll roll. And the little teeny tiny pieces of stem, they won't roll because they thaw out a lot quicker than the berries do. The berries are bigger and Elderberry stalks also have some sort of antifreeze in them. I don't know what God put in there to make them not freeze, but they don't freeze as much as the berries. So if you roll them across a cookie sheet, a lot of the little teeny pieces of stem will stick and just the berries will come through, theoretically. Okay, um, once we get the berries frozen, we can can. We usually do our canning in the winter because it's, there's just no time on the farm in the, in the summer or the fall. We're trying to put away as many tomatoes as we can and hay and everything else. So we, we usually do this in the winter. You can bring it up to boiling. Um, that's how I process everything that I brought here. Um, like this, this pure elderberry juice has been processed over 212. Um, it was brought to boiling and canned. Um, if you have your elderberries at home and you wanna make it in something that you know when you're gonna use it, you can bring it only up to, I believe it's 165 um, or 185, whichever you're comfortable with. And that will save a lot of the flavonoids. For how long? I don't know the answer to that question. I don't know. The question was for how long are you supposed to bring it up to 165? I can't answer that question. I don't process it that way. Yeah. Okay. So we bring it up to boiling and then we put it into the jars with a teaspoon of pure organic lemon juice in each one of the little half pints. So although we say it's pure elderberry juice, there is a little bit of lemon juice in there, just for food safety and to add a little bit of acidity. How much, how much lemon juice? One teaspoon for each half pint. The question was how much lemon juice? And at the end of the day, this is what you get. We canned about 60 jars before we came. Um, it was quite a production for our little kitchen. Um, in Wisconsin, we have something called the pickle law where you can process under $5,000 worth of, of goods in a year and sell them without a commercial kitchen. As long as you mark it, and that's what's on here, it, you have to mark your products. I don't know what your state's laws are, but we have to mark it as this product was made in a private home, not subject to state licensing or inspection. And then it has the ingredients on after that, which is elderberry and lemon juice. So that's what we need to do to be able to sell it at our little roadside stand or here at the conference. But in reality, this is what it looks like when you're doing it. <laughs> it probably looks a little more like your kitchen. I wasn't gonna, I, I took that beautiful picture, I cleaned all up and I said, you know what? That's, yeah, I mean, cause, yeah, cause I, I look at everyone's gardens when they take a picture of the garden, everybody only takes a picture on the day they weed it, but this is, reality. Okay, so this is our recipe that we use. Um, I've tried to get a lot of different recipes and find out how you reconstitute elderberry juice to have some kind of idea how much you take of it. It's a real difficult thing to figure out. If you guys ever used or heard of Sambicus that they sell in the store, um, I believe it's approximately 32% elderberry juice lots of sugar water, and a couple other things in there. 
you can make elderberry juice to 100%, but I don't, myself personally, I've cooked it that way a lot with the berries like this with enough water to cover. And I feel like two cups of berries should make about a cup of juice. That's just my feeling. When I, ha when I use this stuff, um, we actually didn't have enough juice to, to make enough to bring here to the conference. We have a place where we can purchase it from an organic farmer in Iowa. And what they do is they freeze dry their berries and then they have some drippings that come off of that as they're freeze drying it. And that's what we use for the stuff that we have here um, at the conference. And that is absolutely 100%. So I figured out kind of a little percentage to try and get it the same as that so that you know what you're taking. Because if people go and throw you know, six cups of water on top of two cups of berries, it's still going to be dark purple, but it's not going to have as much kick to it. So this is the, um, the syrup recipe that we use to take about a tablespoon. You can take a teaspoon or a tablespoon for preventative and um, a tablespoon four or five times a day when you're sick. I'm not sure what the chemistry is in it, but there is something in the elderberry that stops viruses from replicating. So if you take elderberry juice and take it often because it doesn't stay in your system a real long time. Like taking five tablespoons in the morning is not the same as taking one tablespoon throughout the day. So take it as often as you can. It will help keep that virus from replicating and hopefully you won't get sick. That all started my daughter. I had one that went to public school and she bit her fingernails. And every time she came home with a cold, we'd just line up the elderberry juice because we knew we were all going to get sick. Uh, I'm sorry, that was, uh, someone commented it was called linolin and it attaches to the virus. Yes? The statement is to take it every hour even instead of every several hours, two droppers full. Oh, and the honey, um, if you get it in a jar like this and then you want to reheat it or if, you're, um, if you don't make it immediately off of your berries from, from being frozen, you want to warm it up a little bit so that your honey will melt. It's a good idea to use your own um, local honey that has all, all your own allergens and stuff in it. The, this um, juice that I make, we've, they say it'll last two months in the refrigerator. I don't trust that. Um, I have had it in the refrigerator for a month. I've actually had it in the refrigerator for three months and then all of a sudden it was starting to turn into wine. I don't think it'll spoil, but it will ferment a little bit. Um, so I, I, I think that it's a, that's a good three months. Now, as far as refreezing it, we do. We refreeze it. Um, if I was to make some out of this and I only needed half of it, I would freeze the pure juice, though, without the honey in it so that I could just, like, in little ice cubes and put it in a little glass container or something like that so it's ready for the next time you get a cold. And then and canned like this, they're good for, they say they're good for 18 months. It used to be a year. They have a little better canning tops now, so now they're saying it's 18 months. Um, but once the seal is broken, then that, that's all gone. You have to freeze it or do something to preserve it. The health benefits, there's people here that would even know more about the health benefits than I would. Um, all I know is when my kid would come home with a cold, it would keep the rest of us from getting it and have her not get it as bad. Um, the flavonoids, you need to cook it at a lower temperature to preserve them. It has antiviral and antibacterial. Um, the antibacterial, not as much as the antiviral, but the honey helps with the antiviral as well. And it's a huge boost to the immune system. 
You can research the benefits for yourself to see if it fits into your lifestyle and your, your plan. Um, the only thing I've heard about problems besides the digestive problems, if you eat either the raw berries or if you eat the stems, is that if you have an autoimmune disease, because it will really boost your immunity, and if you have some sort of an autoimmune disease, it might make that inflamed. Okay. Um, I feel like tending the elderberries is spiritual. Every time I go out in the garden and I look at how pretty they are, the flowers in the spring and, and the berries, and I just think I can just find myself thanking God that I have this opportunity to do this. When we share with other people, it's also a great opportunity to share the blessings we've had. Um, we have a number of people that come through our farm in the summer, um, and also we have gardening classes in the fall. And it's a wonderful way to share what you've, what you've done, what you know how to do. And it doesn't matter what you know how to do as far as farming, gardening, anything. When you share what you're doing that has to do with the outside outdoor lifestyle, with the agrarian lifestyle, you're a blessing to everybody. I just can't believe that people walk up to me and say, oh, how do you do that? Or how do you whatever? Or, I can't, you know, you're so lucky. You live on this farm. And all these different words people say to me, I'm like, gee, this is just my life. You know, it's what we've always, always done. Um, my husband was born on the farm. His grandma had the farm. So we're going to be what you call a century farm in another three years. Um, I know some people have talked about knowing your land. After 97 years, we know our land fairly well. And that's, that's a really good place to be. At the same time, it keeps you a little bit attached. But when people come in and say, you know, this is so much different, I have to remember what it was like myself growing up in town. And it is quite a bit different. I didn't move out into the country until I was 18. Okay, if you, if you can, get your county extension agent to come out and help you identify. Otherwise, you can look from books. But the rule of thumb is if they're black, they're okay. And if they're red, they are not. Red elderberries are poisonous. Have I had any success with greenwood cuttings? Um, yes, in the summer we'll take the greenwood, we'll cut it, um, and we'll root that, and it usually is pretty successful. Probably a little more so than the hardwood cuttings, but the greenwood cuttings can't travel. They like sunshine, so you can have full day sunshine if you want. I've also seen them grown successful on the side of a garage, where they only have a half a day of sunshine. So um, I think it all would have to do with, you know, how much production, a little more of sunshine, a little more production. When you started out the first year, you want to pick off all the flowers because you want the plant to have more energy to go into the roots. You can use those flowers. This is something I forgot to say as well. The flowers, when you dry them, you can use them for a tea. And they also have the same medicinal benefits as the juice. Probably not as potent. But they, still, but they still do, and it's a pretty nice tea. Um, so the first year, you pick off all the flowers, dry them for tea. The second year, your wood's going to be a little bit thicker. The second and the third year of your, of your plants is the most productive that they're going to be. By the time they go to the fourth year, you should be pruning them back. Okay, the question is, how far apart do you plant them? Um, depending upon how much room you have, anywhere between 6 and 10 feet. Um, at 6 feet, they will grow together if you want to hedge. At 10 feet, it'll take a lot of years for them to grow together. So I plant mine in the field at 10 feet so it's easier to pick. The, the question is, is, was the caterpillar the only pest pressure? The answer is, in our 
yes, that was all there was. I know that in other places they have certain kinds of fungus or whatever that, in general, the elderberry is very resistant to any kind of pest or, or disease pressure. At our place, the deer do not bother it, but we have it right next to apple trees and plum trees, which the deer just love. I'm not going to use the word rhizome because I, I'm not tech, I know that uh, like raspberries are rhizomes, but this, when it roots, it will send a root out and it will grow up from the root. If that makes it a rhizome, then it is. Okay, the question I believe is how deep do you plant them? If I had a stick like this and I had it in a pot this deep, I would just still plant it at the pot level. I wouldn't take a stick like this and plant it in a pot that big, okay? You want to give lots of room for the roots. If I had one this big, now this one has one, two, three, four nodes on it, I'm going to plant this to here. And so this is how deep I would plant this one. Um, I might pick off the leaves at the top. The other thing you can do is once you have them laying down, like this one with the four nodes, if I would have happened to lay this down and I would have some of these coming up this way, I would plant it like this in the ground. I would even pot it like this if I had room for it. But these longer sticks, unfortunately, with some of these, they're very, very fast growing. There's a lot of room in between the nodes, and you get a lot fewer cuttings that look like this than look like this. Okay, so these two you can lay down flat and plant if you like. You can put your dirt level anywhere. Right, you can plant it as deep as you want as long as these are roots. But if your, if your top green dies and you have green coming out of here and a root coming out of there, I still leave the stick on, but then I'm planting it down here. Okay, you don't want to bury your green. And if this is the only place that you have green from, or you don't want to bury all of your green, you can bury some of it. Yes, it, uh, the question is, does it need sun while they're sprouting? And the answer is no, it does not need sun. You can sprout them, like those little white sprouts that you saw. They can just stay white, and it's not an issue as long as it has enough nutrition in its stick to get itself going. You know, once they start, you know, falling over or something like that, or if they get, I've already planted them with ones this long, and those are, that was way too long as it was looking for sunshine. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.